I have a touchy and maybe an emotional subject for some of you that I want to talk about in this podcast. Someone wrote in and they asked me, actually as a pastor of a small church, and the small church has an abstinence view on alcohol, and he does not have that view. And so he was asking me how to uh, how to walk the church toward what he believes is a more biblical view, and and I do too. But I realize that this is an emotional subject for some people, especially those of you who have had adverse experiences with alcohol, and you've seen it up front and personal. And so I'm going to try to answer his questions. I want to, his one question, I want to give you six things to think about Addressing this issue of alcohol among believers. But again, I know that this will be emotional for some of you. And I don't come at this topic as one who has not been affected by alcohol. I used to drink alcohol when I was a teenager, but I I never did like pure alcohol. It just never has floated my boat. But from a horrific perspective, my father was an abusive drunk. He was an alcoholic. And so I have seen up close and very personal, the effects of alcohol, not only on a human being, as it took my father's life when he was 42 years of age. He started drinking when he was 21. He drank for 21 years, and eventually the accumulative effect of being a drunkard, it killed him uh, as a 42-year-old, which is a young man now, because at this point I'm 18 years older than my father, which is kind of odd to think about. But I have seen the daily effects of it in my family, not just destroying his life, but uh, it was a bomb in our family, and it, it destroyed all of us in, in different ways, and we, we live with the effects of that today. But with that being said, I, I want to come at this subject from a biblical perspective and as objective as I possibly can. When I first became a believer, I had a, uh, a an anti or an abstinence view of alcohol, and, and I used to use the argument that I've seen the effects of it, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. But as I have grown in, in studying the Bible and interacting with a lot of wise people who understand scriptures as well, I've come to a different view. And even though I'm opposed to it and what it can do and the effects I also know that the Bible does not prohibit it. And and again, I realize that will be hard for some of you to listen to. As a matter of fact, I was teaching at a a Southern Baptist uh, district or whatever they call them with a group of pastors, maybe 12 or 15 pastors many years ago. And they were really enjoying what I was teaching. They, They wanted me to teach more. They interacted with me. Uh, afterwards uh, for several weeks and months. And then one of those pastors found out my view on alcohol, which I don't hide, by the way, but he, he came across it, and he, he, he basically slandered me all over Facebook and told people that you need to stay away from me. I'm a horrible person, and I should not be teaching anybody about the Bible. And it was really, it was really 
unkind. He never talked to me about it. He never discussed with me my view uh, on alcohol, but he shared that all over uh, Facebook. So I, I knew, I understood, I mean, understand the legalistic perspective on this and also understand the emotive responses that some people have toward it. And I realize that as I do this podcast that uh, there will be people that will react and possibly, well, they'll react in an unkind way. Some of them will be charitable and they'll just disagree. And that is fine. I prefer disagreement that is charitable, not like that uh, that one Southern Baptist pastor did. But I do understand. And so I'm going to try to tread through this carefully. If you want to read everything that I'm sharing with you in this podcast, I, I would love for you to do that. You can read the podcast. It's an article on our website, rickthomas.net. The title of the article and this podcast, Should My Church Change Its Practice on Alcohol? I will read to you the question that uh, the pastor sent in to me, and then I want to give you six things for your consideration uh, as you think about this idea personally or anyone that you want to walk through this idea to drink or not to drink. I also have more links in here uh, specifically on addiction. I also have some on legalism as well. But if you are struggling, if you're addicted to alcohol or any other sin for that matter, You'll find some helpful links here inside this podcast, and I trust that they will benefit you. I do want to say thank you to uh, Eileen today, who became a supporter of our site. Thank you, Eileen. If I'm correct, you came from uh, the Sarasota Conference, or you heard about us uh, because of the conference that uh, Daniel Berger and I led last week in Sarasota, Florida, if that's correct. Thank you. Either way, thank you, Eileen, for supporting this ministry. And then Brent, uh, uh, Lucia told me uh, today that Brent uh, wanted to support our ministry, not just at $20 a month, but an additional $20 donation. And he told Lucia, Lucia shared this with me, that uh, he said, I understand what it's like and uh, the complications of, of website work. And it just it struck me in an unusual way. I nearly cried, to be honest with you, because this website build has been way harder than I ever anticipated and disappointing in some ways that we have been working overtime for the past four months trying to work on some of the issues. We have a humongous website, and there are so many moving parts on the back end that it has just been really harder than any of us had anticipated. And and when he said that, it just it just hit me and in a good way. I, I I nearly I nearly cried. So Brent, that's on you. So thank you for your your encouragement, also for your support uh, with this ministry. I'm grateful, as you said, according to Lucius, it's worth it and you value it, and I do appreciate it. All right, this article here: Should my church change its practice on on alcohol? Secondary preferences at times can move to primary prominence in some people's minds. And when this happens, division does come, and strong opinions do prevail, as I was illustrating to you earlier with this uh, Baptist pastor. One of the most hotly debated secondary issues in the church, historically speaking, is whether it's a sin to drink alcohol. When helping believers to think biblically about alcohol, you must have patience wisdom, discretion, and courage. 
One of our supporting members did ask me how to help a person change, and so I want to read you uh, the question that he sent to me. He said, a small Baptist church recently called me. They adhere to the church covenant written by J. Newton Brown in 1853. Part of that covenant mandates that no member of our church can sell or drink alcohol. I do not believe that drinking alcohol is a sin, but it would be a mistake if this church changes, uh, but it would be a miracle, rather, if this church changed its belief on this matter. Still yet, it is a hindrance to church growth in the proper sense of that term. Thank you for the clarification, but I assume what you meant there. Like evangelism and a good witness to our community, what would you advise? And so I want to spend the remainder of this podcast asking, uh, answering this question uh, from this pastor who wants to help his church navigate to a more bibliocentric view on this with some folks, a hotly debated and emotional subject of alcohol. John Newton Brown, who he referenced, wrote in 1853 the Baptist Church Covenant that most Baptist congregations have adopted, or it used to be. They base it, as this church is uh, reflecting in their church covenant, they base it in part on the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith of 1833. Now, here is the covenant. I'm just going to read it to you verbatim. It's not that long. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion, to religiously educate our children to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word.
The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith of 1833. I thought it was interesting that the covenant does not, does not condone excessive anger, but by implication, you could have other forms of anger. That's just an instructive, instructive point on, on, on my point. It, it, it seems that all the sins of the Bible, of all the ones that they mention, the two specifically are the sins of the tongue and alcohol. I do like this covenant a lot, but when it when it got into an actual sin list, there were really only two things: backbiting, tattling, gossip, excessive anger, sins of the tongue, and alcohol. And while their interpretation, in my view, of of alcohol's sinfulness is dubious at best, it appears that the writers of this covenant were susceptible to presentism. Presentism is mapping their experience over what the Bible writers meant when they wrote about alcohol. It's kind of like eisegesis as well. Presentism, presentism is where we live today, and we look back into the Bible, and we interpret the Bible through that lens. I suspect the reason they did that is because the abuse of alcohol was disproportionate to some of the other sins that were going on in Brown's day when this covenant was written. Therefore, the church's response to the problem with alcohol was was total abstinence. I, I get that. I really do. And in this day, we, we have other issues like social justice and other things that are pressing in on the church, and where we want to be careful is that we don't overreact. And that tends to be our tendency, and so there's no judgment here about their presentism. This type of thing is, quite honestly, is what gave rise to legalism in the early 1900s, and I wrote an article just recently on fundamentalism and As of today, for two weeks running, it's been the most read article on our website for two straight weeks, which has been remarkable as well as as instructive, and you can read that article here. It's linked here if you want to read it, because legalism is a big deal. Back then, our society, it seemed to be cutting a wide swath to hell during the Roaring Twenties, and the religious culture overcorrected by creating standards for holiness that that were only outdone by the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. It is hard for any of us to think outside of our personal experiences. It's why I'm appealing to you to to try to do that as you listen to this podcast, because as a person who has been affected adversely and horrifically by alcohol, I, I totally get it. It's wise to hold our experiences loosely as we weigh them against the Word of God in the context of spiritual a spirit-illuminated community. Every era makes special things bigger than previous cultures did, or future cultures will. For example, in today's culture, I mentioned social justice, but also if you are a racist, for example, you can lose your company, as Donald Sterling did as he lost ownership of the NBA basketball team, the L.A. Clippers. But if you kill a baby, you receive praise for personal choice. You see the disparity there. I also find it ironic, during the day of the 1853 Baptist Confession, you could not drink alcohol or kill a baby, but you could own slaves. Our times can dictate our morals. 
And so regarding this church or any church that you're walking through this, this idea of drinking alcohol or not, I want to give you six things that I propose for your consideration in no particular order. The first one is artificial timelines. I would not recommend that you create an artificial timeline on changing the worldview of the church culture concerning alcohol. Regardless of what may be going on in the community or church, there is a right time to make controversial changes if you make them at all. You can turn a ship around on a dime but throw most of the passengers overboard. But if you take a longer trajectory, you might be able to turn the boat around while saving most of the passengers. This issue of alcohol is a passionate one for some, especially those who have been adversely affected by alcohol. The abusive alcoholic parent that will put something on the child that, in some ways, they'll never shake off. Or a person who does have a personal addiction, they have a life-dominating sin of, of drinking alcohol. And so you want to be careful. You don't want to set up artificial timelines. Let wisdom dictate when it's time to change, not any other issue or event inside or outside the church. And while you want to encourage and teach people to move forward on concerns that the Bible frees you to move forward on, you don't want to create the other error of moving too soon. And so point number one, artificial timelines don't create them. Point number two, the kindness of God. See this possibility of change as a kindness of the Lord rather than the curse of the flock. It's about accent marks here, and sometimes uh, when you want to do something like this, you can be overly focused on the resistance, those who don't want to do this, and really what you need to put the accent mark on is the kindness of God. It would be so easy to lose focus and patience with your people because they have an improper interpretation of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that you're doing this, but uh, the pastor who wrote this and ask me this question, but I do know that some do. I also know that I have lost patience with people who, who would not get on with the program, could not see what they needed to do, and so I, I get that. And so you don't want to be sin-focused on this matter. Staying God-focused will serve you well. Your job, as you know it, is to envision and equip with humility and gentleness. You could think of it like parenting, in that you're not looking for the perfect seven-year-old. Uh, seven Lord help us, none of us will have that. Your parenting goal is to lead a child to the point of adulthood where he will be able to live in God's world as a man or a woman under God's authority. That's a long-term goal. It won't happen at seven years, but it's a 20-year plan. Expecting the perfect child or perfect preteen or perfect teenager could be disheartening while tempting you to press for premature change, which ties back into the artificial timelines. And so always keep the end in mind as you instruct about the process of change. Your church has a worldview that has been shaped in part by an old church covenant and culture that is not biblically mature 
or minimally they they were interpreting scripture through the lens of of the crises and the things that they were seeing in their present world that is where they are that is where they were you will need a lot of patience as you lead your group to a better way to think about god life themselves and others it's so a point number 1 artificial timelines don't create them point number 2 This is the kindness of God. Progressive sanctification, whether it's personally within a family or a local church, it is the kindness of God. Number three, drink by faith. To take the previous thought a little deeper about pushing too hard with folks, this is a faith issue for them. Many, if not most of your church members, believe faith. It is a sin to drink alcohol. If they believe it is a sin, then it is a sin to them. Listen to Paul's teaching in in 1 Corinthians. He said this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 7, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, you could say, therefore, as far as drinking alcohol, Paul says, we know that an idol has no real existence and and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through their former association with idols, you could say, former association with alcohol, like in my situation, they eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled It is a dangerous thing to push Christian liberty onto others who do not have that liberty due to to their former associations, shaping influences, or insufficient teaching that has trained their consciences to believe things the Bible does not teach. And though it is not a sin to drink alcohol, it's a sin to get drunk. But it is not a sin to drink alcohol. You or I could be in danger of sinning against our brothers and sisters by pushing our preferences too hard too soon. Paul was teaching us that those believers believed it was a sin to eat meat offered to idols. The main point is not whether they are right or wrong but the training of their consciences around this real-world problem of meat and idols, or in our day, drinking alcohol. They believe it is a faith issue. Don't cause them to stumble. And so point number three is drink by faith. Everybody can't do that. Number four, the sinning conscience. Let's go a little farther. A person's conscience is their personal highest level of morality, even higher than the Bible, as we see in the text that I just read to you out of 1 Corinthians. Paul says that they can't sin against their conscience, therefore their conscience is their personal highest level of morality. And though he knew it was not a sin, according to the Bible, to eat meat offered to idols, he clearly taught that those new believers' consciences trumped the teaching of God's Word. The point being, you cannot sin against your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong. There are many times and contexts to retrain the conscience of the people of your church, and you must know how to do this, how to retrain them. 
This is why you don't want to create artificial timelines, which will push them to sin against their consciences. This is point number four, the sinning conscience. You don't want to push them there. I used to believe it was a sin to wear shorts. I also accepted the teaching of church clothes. That's a thing. That's a label. We have church clothes and non-church clothes. These were conscience issues for me, not biblical mandates. There's no such thing taught in the Bible. Even so, it would have been wrong for me to sin against my conscience by wearing whatever I wanted to wear to a church meeting. It will take you a long time to lovingly guide and envision your church into biblical freedom that does not bind their consciences, or for others to arrogantly look down on those who hold different secondary preferences. Point number five, where is worldliness? Part of this discussion hangs on our understanding of worldliness. The old-time Gnostics believed and, and taught that the world was bad and harmful and evil, so they abstained, as much as one could, from the things that were in the world. Now, this worldview is an unfortunate preferential stance to take because there is so much in God's world to enjoy. The modern-day legalist has picked up on this Gnostic notion, too. They teach that worldliness is in the world, a message that is contrary to the Word of God. John said in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then in the next sentence, he goes on to explain what is in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, where are those things located? Those things are located in our hearts, and that's where you will find worldliness. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world, as John said. And then James was said in, in 1.14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. John and James see worldliness in the heart, not in our culture. It is when our evil desires take the good things in our world and use them for evil. Let me give you a few examples. Love is good, but we turn it into all kinds of sexual perversion. Food is good, but we use food as escapes to comfort or other gluttonous tendencies. Words are good, but we use words like hammers to beat people or knives to cut them. Alcohol is good for some people, but we use it as food to escape from realities we don't want to face. That's an alcoholic, or, or it will lead to that. Money is good, but we can use it to stroke our egos by collecting accoutrements for ourselves. Facebook is good, maybe, but we can use it to envy and hurt others. You can tie all these things to the worldly heart, whether it's love, food, words, alcohol, money, or Facebook, but to abstain from them as though they are the things that cause our sinfulness is to miss the mark regarding where real sin abides. The worst outcome of this is isolating yourself from the things in our culture while incarcerating yourself by the idols of your heart. There are merit and wisdom in abstaining from things that tempt our sinful hearts. Abstain, flee, run for those things that tempt your heart, but it would be misguided to think those things were the causes 
of our sin. The title of this podcast, Should My Church Change Its Practice on Alcohol? A pastor wrote and asked, how do you lead a church through this as he believes it's not a sin? I have shared five of six things. The first five are don't set artificial timelines for change. Number two, focus on the kindness of God that he's working in your life and the life of your church. Number three, if you drink, you drink by faith. Number four, always consider the sinning conscience. You don't want people to sin against their consciences. Number five, where is worldliness? It's in our hearts. Number six, equip the church. Paul talked about two ditches in 1 Corinthians 8 about the idols and the meat people, the Jewish converts, that we should steer clear. The first is knowledge, which can make, which can make people arrogant in their freedom, and the second is a weak conscience that can keep a person in bondage to fear. The first group looks down on the other group, while the second group lives in fear, which can lead to a life of secret keeping and other forms of deception. You have the privilege of leading your church through this opportunity for change. And while you don't want to be too quick to push for change, you also don't want to let this go as though it does not matter. A gospel-centered life is a life of freedom in Jesus that unhooks us from the world in every way, especially the worldliness in our hearts. Your people have been called to freedom whether it is freedom from self-righteous arrogance, the grace mistake, or freedom from fear found in the bondage to secondary issues. As you lead your folks, remember this is an emotional issue that is tied to deeply rooted and enculturated thinking. Your task will not be easy. It would serve you well to become a student of the conscience. I have several links here that I would love for you to read about the conscience and how un- or sub-biblical rules can bind it. You can also find some helpful articles on our website regarding the conscience, but there are other articles here as well. Understanding fear and faith, for example, as it pertains to decision-making, that would be beneficial too. And then finally, I have a call to action section at the bottom of this article. I'll not share it with you here due to time, but I have three question sets that I would love for you to read and apply. And anyone else that's walking through this issue, or if you're walking someone through it, please use this article as a tool uh, to serve them, to help them in this process. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.